to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, and join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I'm Charlotte and today is Sunday the 28th of November, which means it's also the end of week four of our daily podcasts in November for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And this, in fact, is the last official roundup episode from us. We do have two more episodes, though, coming before the end of the month. But for now, let's just take a moment, like we have done for the previous three Sundays, to reflect on some of the interviews we heard this week, as well as some of the bits of the interviews we didn't quite get to hear this week. We began on Monday by hearing from Vicky, she lost her twin sister to pancreatic cancer and then her friend. She shared with us what it was like going through that and also told us during the interview how fundraising and volunteering has been helping her. At the beginning, we, we tried to raise funds. We did a, we did a bike for London to Paris bike raid, which raised a lot of money for, for PCUK, which is great. And, and we, we had a ball. We're going to do another charity ball because we've got another friend whose sister... Um, died of it 10 years ago next year so we're, we're, we're going to do another sort of fundraiser for that um, and just you know I think all we can do is try to help raise awareness and support and and also support the research efforts by proofreading or all those kinds of things that uh, that, that pancreatic cancer needs support that PCUK needs support with um, so I just think we all just need to do our bit. But there's, you know, if I if if I could, I'd I'd say please, governments direct funds into this research because it just seems to me that it's increasingly it just seems more and more people seem to be being affected, or at least we're we're becoming more aware of what it is that's killing people, I suppose. And it's such a big thing now um, that we can't ignore it anymore. How much does doing that fundraising, that raising awareness, and that that, that helping out the, the PCUK, how much does that help you? Because obviously it helps it helps other people, clearly, because the money gets raised, the awareness gets raised, and you're supporting the charity. But for you, what? how does that help you? Um, well, it just, I mean, it obviously helps because we, we know what people went through. So if we can help 
uh, help make future people, people who might have it in the future, have more hope and more reasons to hope and more reasons, you know, to think they might get through it by adding our um, support. Then, then, then that's obviously got, got to be worthwhile. It helps us make try to make sense of it in some way. Um, you know, but it's uh, it, it's just because you you feel one of the overwhelming um, things is you feel so hopeless, and that that is you know it, it, it's it's something that you just can't really do anything about, and this is all we feel we can do really, you know. So um, it 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 helps because it, it's better than doing nothing, just waiting for it to happen. <laughs> Talking of fundraising, I had a great chat with Joe and Linda, who trekked the Great Wall of China in 2015. They, in fact, went on the same trip that Leslie did, although none of them knew each other before they set off. Jo signed up to the trek, even though she has a fear of heights, and she wanted to raise money in memory of her dad. Linda signed up as a bit of a spur-of-the-moment thing. She got the email and she thought, yep, going to do that. And she wanted to raise money in memory of her mum and her aunt. What they told me their adventure began well and truly before they set foot on the wall. They had turbulence on the flight over, interesting accommodation to say the least, and I think there are more bugs there than there were on I'm a Celebrity. So what is it then that got them through all of that plus an eight-day trek? Joe explains. I just remember one pause, I think it might have been on the second day, when do you remember we walked across the ledge and I just actually had a tantrum and said, I can't go there. And so John said he didn't like heights. So he said, hold my hand and we'll walk across it. And I was just thinking, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then I just kept telling myself I was doing this to raise money, to, to, you know, to help with research and medicine for, you know, um, for cancer that my father died of. I think that's all that kept me going, actually, across the things with heights. But at the end, I have to say at the end, my height phobia had gone. Before I went, I couldn't go down the Marilyn escalator without waiting for somebody to be in front of me. And then I used to go backwards down there just to prove that I do like heights. <laughs> After I'd done the wall. I think the whole thing was about our um, teamwork together, wasn't it? And just the laughs we had, you know, and the upsets that were going on, people who didn't like this and didn't like that. My poor dad was 83, but he hadn't stopped working. He was still working on the farm and he literally up until a week before he passed away, worked on the farm. But I just remember the day that he was diagnosed, I knew that he had something because he lost so much weight um, and couldn't eat properly. And I just remember the day he was diagnosed and, you know, it was like devastation. And he didn't want any treatment. He couldn't have any treatments anyhow, but he didn't want something like chemotherapy so yeah all I can say is it's a charity that's really close to my heart and I would do anything for pancreatic cancer I have thought about but I really think this is a bit far-fetched for me to jump out of an airplane with my height phobia is getting better <laughs> but I'm not sure that I can actually I think I might have a heart attack more than a vertigo attack but I, I want to do something that's different, obviously, because that makes, you know, that helps you raise money. When I was training, I used to take, a, I had a business card made up with a picture of the wall on it, my name, the charity, charity number. And when I saw people, they used to say, what are you, you know, doing this for? And I just gave them a little card. 
and I had quite a few donations from just talking to people um, out and about while I was training for it. And that is a cracking tip for fundraising, especially if you're doing something that involves training. Pop on your charity t-shirt and make sure you've got something physical that you can hand out with your details on so that people can sponsor you. Now, I often joke with people that my surname, that's Foster, is as close as I'll ever get to being a doctor. And I do avoid Gloucester. Um, Science is another thing that baffles me as well. So I can often feel a little bit nervous when I speak to some of the doctors and researchers on these podcasts. Now, obviously, there has never, ever been any need to feel nervous because they've all been fabulous including Fika Froling, a consultant medical oncologist and clinical senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow. She's part of the Precision Pank team, and she told me what she expects to happen with pancreatic cancer in the future. I've studied different aspects of pancreas cancer, and what brings it all together for me is now putting it in the context of the whole human body, where we see a two centimeter cancer in one patient behaves completely different in a two centimeter cancer in another patient. Whereas actually, if you just look at all the CT scans or at even another microscope, they 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 look the same. Now, to, and it's really to say, how can we learn the so the basically the evolution from the cancer and the host to say it's a co-evolution system where the cancer and the host they evolve in this together and to tease out those mechanisms to say how does it happen that's what really is driving me and i think that's how we can also find better treatments to to basically maybe strengthen the host or work on on boosting like the immune system or your other mechanisms to say, oh, what can we do to to strengthen the host also to 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 fight the pancreas cancer safe from within the patient's body, if you like. That's that's what's driving me at the moment. I feel very privileged to be able to work in both. That you can say, as because I didn't even touch it. I also work as a medical oncologist, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of <laughs> so that's just, you know, just do that as well. <laughs> no, but it is. I think it's you see the patients and then then to basically look after the patients guide them through their treatments and then at the same time go back to the laboratory or the clinical side of research so in the laboratory you do did the whole tumor host interaction but then also at the clinical side work on the setup of different clinical trials it's 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 a privilege to work on all those fields and that you can basically really and yeah see the patients guide them through the treatments and at the same time work in in the in the lab and clinical research fields to set up different clinical trials and studies for the patients so i think it's research makes a difference and i think we've made observations decades ago that cancer is a wound that does not heal and i think pancreas cancer is also a prime example of that where you see this and so yeah research will make a difference so we've seen that with other cancer types, as David says, I think we're lagging behind in pancreas cancer, but it will come. And I love what Fika says about how treatment needs to look at more than just while well, we treat the cancer. It's how we treat the patient as a whole so the patient can fight off the cancer as well. I just hadn't really considered that before. 
This week, you've heard from a number of fabulous women paying tribute to special people in their lives. On Thursday, you heard from radio presenter Stephanie Hurst. She spoke about her mum, Joyce. Now, there were so many Joyce stories, I could not fit them into the episode that went out on Thursday. So here's Steph to tell you a little bit more about her mum. If you've seen the film Brassed Off, that's filmed in a village uh, in the north of England, in Barnsley, which is called Grimethorpe. Uh, but in the in the film, it's the fictional town of Grimley. And my mum was from uh, Grimy, as it's affectionately called. And uh, she was um, she was a tough cookie. She she always led me to believe that she was one of the uh, one of one of the cocks of the school, as she called it. You know, people who were the bullies at school. And I don't think she ever was. She just liked to be. And I feel really awful telling this story about her. But she she, she said she used to knock about with all the other girls. We what cocks at school, us, you know. No one used to mess with us. And she went to a school called Willagarth, um, which apparently was quite rough in its time in the 1960s. And, um, and yeah, she always led me to believe that she was a bit of a roughin at school. But my mum had a really soft edge to her as well. But she was tough. And I think I get my toughness from my mum. My mum never, she never took any prisoners. She she knew exactly what she wanted to do. But the thing is as well, she, she wasn't, she wasn't the most educated of, of people when she, because she, you know, she went to school, but sometimes she didn't go to school. You know, they used to, they used to, as she called it, twagging it in the 60s. I don't know if that's just a Northern term for not going to school. And um, so in the 1980s, I remember her going back to school. Her and some other friends who, not the same ones that she she um, she hung about with at school, but her and some of the like-minded friends um, decided that their maths and English weren't good enough. So there was an enterprise um, thing set up. I think it was called Enterprise. And um, I remember her going there and and she learned how to, you know, to write better. She, her maths got a lot better. And this was in her, she'll have been in her mid-30s at this point. She decided she wanted to learn because her, she she obviously felt bad that her education, she, she you know, probably, probably her own fault, to be honest, you know. Uh, she probably didn't uh, get the best out of the education system in the 1960s, but but she did. I remember we went off to London. That's when the first time I went to London when I was about eight with my mum and with the with the other women and their sons and daughters. And it was yeah, it was it was lovely. So my mum was she was quite a character. Um, she uh, she worked in factories. So in the 1960s, she worked for Rantree Macintosh, uh, Quality Streets Factory. Uh, and then she went to work uh, for a bulb company. Uh, and that's what she did for, for many years, actually. So the manufacturer of uh, of bulbs that, that they use on trains, so big halogen bulbs, my mum used to manufacture those. And she worked for a, a company called SEAG for many, many, many years. And then she went to work for a hot water bottle factory, uh, which I went to work for. She got me a job in the summer as a little summer job, uh, which was which was brilliant working for my mum, working with my mum, should I say. Uh, because um, we were very similar, I think very driven, know exactly what we want. Uh, so we were a little bit like, you know, chalk and cheese sometimes. But I think you are when you're growing up as well. It's only when you get older you really start to appreciate how wonderful your parents are. Um, and I think that that we got a bit of a bond when I was working with her, actually. I saw a very different side to her 
and you're seeing your mum in the workplace and obviously they're they're different to what they are at home. Yeah, it's that um, whole, you yeah. know, she's not your mum there, is she? Yeah, she's she's, she is your mum, but she's not your mum at the same time. Yeah, she's she was it was just yeah, it was a different dynamic. And uh, I I know well, I know that we 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 had a, a different relationship at work and I think that made our relationship much stronger. And um, she she raised me. She went back out to work again when she was about, oh gosh, I don't know. I was about, I think, I must have been about 12 or something like that. So she'd have been mid-late 30s, approaching 40s, something like that, uh, when uh, when she went back out to work and uh, gave me a key to the front door. Don't burn the house down, all that kind of stuff. I'm going back out to work. There's some microchips in the microwave and some Finders Crispy pancakes. Stick them on for three minutes. <laughs> Don't annoy the dog, which is when I used to come home for dinner because my school was around the corner from 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 our house. So that was it. Mum went back out to work. And then um, I started because working on radio and, and DJing. I'd worked in a radio station from 12 years old, on air at 16. I had my own little mobile disco. So I always knew that I wanted to work in the, in the radio industry and entertainment industry. And um, I'm DJing in pubs at 16 and 17 in town. And there's my mum. She was having a second <laughs> bite of the cherry. <clears throat> she was going out with all her friends. And literally, until, I would say, until she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I saw my mum in town most weekends with her friends. She was a party animal. She was glamorous. She was, she, I used this term recently, actually, in another podcast um, with, uh, with the MP, Jess Phillips. And uh, I said she wasn't, uh, she wasn't mutton dressed as lamb. Which I think is a, I don't know if that's a Northern saying or whatever. Um, but she was, she was glamorous. She was beautiful. She had these amazing cheekbones, which I think people, someone says to me, you've got nice cheekbones. I'm like, thanks. I think my mum gave me them. Um, but my mum just looked, she looked incredible and she was beautiful. And um, yeah, and, and she was into, she was always into fashion and, and style and she just looked great. And I was proud that, you know, most people would probably think, oh God, my mum's over there. I was like, that's my mum and she's ace. And she was brilliant. And um, we grew very, very, very close in, in her later years in life. And I used to go around and um, she'd make me tea on a Wednesday and I'd lay on the sofa and I'd have my head in her lap. I remember talking about this on my radio show at the time. <clears throat> my colleagues on the show, they really took the mickey out of me. What, you go round to your mum's and you put your head in her lap? No, well I do. I lay on the sofa on my back and my head is resting on a, on a leg. And she just strokes my head and I fall asleep because I've been up since 4.30 this morning. <laughs> and I love that because she would have done that to me when I was when I was a child, she'd have stroked my hair because she's my mum and I loved it. And I'm so glad I got to do that. And I've took a look, I took a few selfies actually, I think because I got the Mickey taken out of me at work. So just to show them, but those pictures now, I didn't realise it at the time. Those pictures are so priceless. And another thing that is priceless to Steph are the recordings she made of her mum while she was talking to her about all sorts of things. Now, Steph did make those recordings secretly, which you really shouldn't do. You shouldn't be recording people without their knowledge. However, I think we'll let her get away with it because Steph knew at this point her mum really didn't have very long left. 
So I asked Steph if she tried to steer those conversations to anything in particular that she wanted to find out. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was bits of information that I wanted to know. I had a brother who was born um, premature before, uh, two years before I was born. And um, his lungs collapsed and he was only, I think, six, seven weeks premature, which is now he would, you know, he would have survived, you know. Um, but in 1973 or some, whatever it is, 74, you know, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have survived at all uh, when he didn't. And um, so I wanted to know information about that. I wanted information about, you know, because I never met my granddad, her dad. He died at 47 of a heart attack. So and that was a few couple of years before I was born. And my mum and uh, her dad were like chalk and cheese. They fell out. They didn't speak for about 18 months because they really were chalk and cheese. It was very controlling. And my mum, being my mum and strong world, she was having none of this. So, uh, so they just got talking again and he'd gone to my mum and dad's wedding and they were really rebuilding their relationship. And then he died of a heart attack. At four to seven, so I wanted to know about him because she would have told me things when I was growing up, and I remember telling me story about um, she was listening under the bedclothes to the radio, probably tuning into Radio Luxembourg back in the nineteen sixties or the pirate radio ship or something, and uh, and he could hear the he could hear the transistor radio, so he came in, grabbed it off her, and threw it against the wall, smashed it into a million pieces. She literally sat up for two hours. And put it back together and turned it on full blast. And I love that. The determination, the pure determination of getting this thing running again. And he just walked in, rolled his eyes and shut the door. I'm like, go on, mum. Go on. Yes. But I love that because she was driven. She was determined. You know, no one was going to tell her no. So uh, so it's just getting all these stories firsthand and, uh, and just bits of information. And, uh, and also that... <laughs> The 700 quid, right, in a shoebox, right? Don't forget about it. So that was, that was interesting that she, I remember telling me that, <clears throat> don't forget, I've saved 700 quid. <laughs> it's in, it's in pound coins and fivers. Because she's from that generation. She just stashed cash in the house, but she didn't want me to get rid of a shoebox or chuck it away. And so there's, yeah, I literally in every single voice memo, because because of the, uh, because of the, um, I'm going to start the same, because of the morphine, you know, a thought process started to kind of disintegrate a little bit. And uh, so every conversation was 700 quid in that shoebox. So she, she went on about that a lot. And there was more, it was like 715 quid. <laughs> Bless her. But uh, yeah, she, she was awesome. She was diagnosed in May and she was gone by August. It's so quick, isn't it? It's so quick. It's rapid. And um, this is why I believe that, you know, we need more awareness around this. And some of the, um, I mean, if you go to the NHS website, of course, you'll be able to see the symptoms and everything. And if, if any, if there's anything there, let's just go and see your GP but sometimes I think with, with GPs, you really have to fight. You really have to fight 
<clears throat> to get to that next level of of getting a scan or or something, um, which is which is very frustrating. I think that's what my mum my mum went through, and it was hard. You also heard from Louise, who somehow somewhere found the strength to take part in a one hundred kilometer hike. That's more than sixty miles in old money in the Peak District. And it started the day after her sister Jo's funeral in the summer this year. And she's already planning the next fundraiser, she tells me. Next year, we're going to do 100k, but we're going to do it continuously. We're not going to stop overnight. So that's roughly about 22 hours walking. But we've chosen an easier route. We've chosen a London route, which is Putney Bridge to Henley-on-Thames. Oh, nice. I thought it'd be quite pretty, quite a pretty route. Um, and yeah, being London, you know, I mean, the peaks, people were going, as we were finishing on the first day, people were going back out into the pitch black, pouring rain to carry on. There's no way I could have done that. But I'm thinking if it's London, London's quite busy, it's quite well lit, you know, um, yeah, I could probably do it continuously. So that's our plan for next year. I just want to say, did the name the Peak District not give you any clues? No, not at the time, no. I just thought, oh, oh that would be pretty. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got the map with the inclines and I looked at it and I thought, what have I done? There's no way I could train for what I went through on that those two days. There's no, no amount of training. thing is, if you knew beforehand, would you have done it? No, probably not. <laughs> I probably would have cancelled it and signed up for something a little bit easier. But you know what? Everyone, afterwards, um, I, I'm on the page of the company that set it up. And afterwards, everyone's saying that's the hardest one you can do. Like, out of all of them, they do the Chilterns, they do the South Walk, they do the Jurassic Walk, you know, all the different walks in the UK. And everyone said that that was the hardest one. That What a sense of achievement, though. And I can. I'm sure Joe would have been absolutely just thrilled for you. So proud, been. and like you say, those rainbows. I'm with you. Yeah, we we see things for a reason. Yeah, definitely, we absolutely do. Yeah. And I guess when you're at, at Joe's funeral and everyone's going, so yeah, what about the rest of the weekend? Oh yeah, I'm just going to walk sixty odd miles. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I do think a lot of my family. I mean, obviously we were. Um, reduced numbers we could only have 30 people at the creme and 30 people at um joe was um her service was at a woodland um close to where she lives so it's a very beautiful quiet place and that's where she's been her ashes have been interned and when she'll where she'll remain um it's a very beautiful quiet place and we all came out and afternoon tea and champagne was all put out and i just went and put my trainers on and said i've got to go everyone sorry i've got a three-hour drive and i don't think everyone thought i was going to go i think a lot of people were like she really going to do it? But I'd raised so much money and I'd made commitments and I'd booked things and there was no way I was going to not do it. There was no way. And I want to leave you this week with another amazing woman, Laurie Casey. Laurie got in touch with the podcast from America because she wanted to pay tribute to her big brother, David Nardella. Dave, as he was more commonly known, was an undercover agent for the US government and was awarded some of the highest honours in recognition for his work. But of course, to Laurie, he was her big bro. After he passed away, there were so many things I wanted to do on his behalf. Um, I remember some of the last days we had in Chicago. He was at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And one day I was... I, <laughs> I made sure he was in the hospital at the end for about two months straight. 
and still getting chemo and still um, getting the platelets and the blood transfusions and things like that. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a mama bear. <laughs> so I made sure that every day he was there, he had someone with him overnight. Um, and I didn't care. And, and my husband's like, Lori, are you sure? And I'm like, I want someone with him there 24 seven. I don't care. And our mom flew out from Florida twice and stayed a week. And so I had this calendar. He had a, another friend who was retired that flew out and, um, it was toward the end. And, and I was curled up sleeping on this like makeshift bed and out of nowhere, he jumped up and he said, Laura, what's going to happen to my kids? And I just stopped and I gave him a hug. I said, big bro. I said, I promise you, I will take care of them. They're going to be fine. And we talk so much about things and life in general. And, you know, besides that July 21st date, when I received that first text from him, and obviously losing him on February 8th, I think the worst day of our journey was the day that his oncologist said, we can't do any more chemo because one of the things that we all live for are options, right? Options are good. You have options for this. You have options for that. And up until that point, you know, we were, it's kind of like, you know, we're Catholic, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel. You know, you've got chemo, you've got a scan. Now you've got the results. Okay. That chemo, didn't do what it was supposed to do. So we're going to do another chemo and now we're going to try radiation. And now we're going to try this. And so we had options. And the day the oncologist said, I'm sorry, we have no more options. You know, that, that to me was the day. And our cousin Mike was with my brother and I was at home and we were on a conference call. And I remember so clearly Dave saying, no, please, I'll, I'll, I'll do more. I'll get better. You know, just, just let me keep taking the chemo, which sounds so ironic because he was begging to have the poison because we didn't know which concoction of poison would be the key that would, you know, that would reduce the tumors that would shrink it back that could hopefully have, have, you know, the surgery that would make everything okay. Um, so that, that was, that was a very, very hard time to stomach because when you have options, things are good. You know, you have a way to go, you have a route, you have a destination. Um, and even if those options change, that's okay. Like we, we would shift and we would go to a different path and we would try things and, that day is just ingrained in my memory and it's, it's so clearly is something I, I recall. Um, and then, you know, asking my brother, where do you want to go? Um, he didn't want the kids to see him in the hospital and he was so weak and, 
you know, now, now we're talking hospice and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? You know, six and a half months ago, two weeks prior to that, he was at our house. We were playing kickball for his nephew's birthday. And now I am like sitting here talking hospice, like this can't be happening. Um, so that's when we, we ended up, you know, having the conversation and I said, Dave, where do you want to go? Um, and he was still very good friends with his ex-wife and, and she said, yeah, definitely have him come home. I mean, he was living at home at the time and it was so close to the point that, I mean, he was so weak that we had to get, um, an ambulance to take him home. And I just remember them saying, you know what, we're going to have to wait. It might be, it was a, it was a Friday and they said, oh, it might be the weekend. It might be this and it might be that. And I remember all of this talk was in the room and, and he didn't need to hear any of that. I just knew I needed to get my brother home. So I asked the workers if we could meet at the, the lounge in the corner of the hospital. And, and we started talking and they said, we are going to try to get him today. And I just stopped everybody. And I said, listen, my brother has three babies at home. I said, he served our country and he doesn't have much time left. I said, he will leave here today with an ambulance. Monday is not an option. And I wasn't rude. I wasn't disrespectful, but I made it very clear that this is what had to happen. And we did get him home. So I was happy about that. Um, and, you know, we were all with him and that kind of thing. My parents got to come see him and, and, you know, that was, that was definitely good, but it was, um, it was like no journey that I've ever, ever been on in my life. And so many people that do find themselves in this journey are, you know, their, their brains are also kind of reeling just first of all, trying to accept or understand what's happening. And then just at how quickly things progress. That's it, isn't it? It's the speed. And like you say, how you can go from, it was six months prior, everything was, I hate the word normal, but normal to, to where you were. Laurie, what would be your message to, to people listening, you know, who, who are there out there listening to the podcast? I would say first, just build a very, very strong bench. You know, people, people want to help. They really, really do. And let them in. Um, if people are there as a helper, don't say, what can I do? Just do something, whether it's, you know, make food or do whatever. Um, Dave and I used to joke around because so many people would say, what can I do? What can I do? I don't like that word because, or, you know, that, that sentence, because I'm more of a, just do it, you know, drop off a meal, clean the leaves out of their gutters, mow the lawn, take the cars in to get the oil changes. Like, like it's more of a, 
we would joke around and, and say, you know, maybe we should tell people we want some pink M&Ms with purple polka dots and see what they, you know, just because you can't do anything, but people want to help. So, you know, what, what can I do? Um, the other thing is, is people would say, how are you feeling? And my brother would look at me and he's like, I can't believe people are asking me how I'm feeling. I have cancer. So it's more of a like, how are things today? Like everything, when you are in this cancer club, it's all about right now and just the focus. And he he chose, he was like, I just, I really need people to stop reaching out because I, I really want to focus on me and relaxing and, um, you know, just making sure that I'm the best person that I could be. And I think just the awareness level, um, and, and how, and, and, you know, push for those answers, push, push for those trials. I mean, the only, what do you, what do you have to lose? There, there isn't a solid cure for this cancer. And I wish, I wish we would have known more going into it, but it was just like, we were thrust into it. And then all of a sudden we're, you know, hurrying and scurrying on the hamster wheel. But, you know, if, if we would have known more and could have gotten into to trials and to do things and to, you know, I'll never forget when we went to Northwestern and they asked, you know, can, can we use a, some of the biopsy for a clinical study or for a study? And, and my brother said, will it help other people? And they said, absolutely. He said, sure. Like that's, that's what he wanted. He wanted to help other people that are going through this, that one day, you know, are waking up going to a exercise class and the next day they're in the hospital with a port. Um, and then to make sure that his kids knew how much he loved them and how hard he fought for them because everything he did, everything he did was for them. And then he wanted to be remembered. And there's so many special things that we were able to do. And I was able to do with, you know, our family, um, down in Southern Illinois, where he's from, um, I had a memorial bench put in cause he loved nature, mushroom hunting. I mean, I would, I would take him between the chemo visits and, and he would show me these special areas of the, the, uh, forest preserve where there were mushrooms and he knew where these special patches were and, so right in the middle of the forest preserve, um, I was able to get him a memorial bench and it's got the placard and it says special agent David R. Nardella, beloved father, son, uncle, friend. And it's just the coolest spot. Thank you to everybody who took part in the podcast this week. And of course, thank you for listening too. Leslie and I would love to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch with us at purplerainbow.co.uk. If you've missed any of this week's episodes, you can catch up. And don't forget, you can still follow the podcast in your podcast app so you'll never miss another episode again. And of course, I'll be back tomorrow with a brand new episode for you.